Welcome back to the TV Podcast. I am once again Monty Ashley, and I am once again joined by Brian Hamilton to discuss Game of Thrones. How's it going, Monty? Hi, Brian. So, Season 4, Episode 5, first of his name. I assume we're talking about Tommen, although most of these people have weird names that are probably the first in their families. What did you think of the episode? Well, it wasn't really the first of the Lannister name. You know, he's uh, kinged in the very first moments of the episode, and, you know, he's still a Lannister. That kind of confused me, but then again, I don't really understand the, uh, you know, medieval politics that, uh, you know, Westeros is based in. Well, he's announced as King Tommen of the House of Baratheon, which he ought to be because his father, his nominal father, was Robert Baratheon. Everybody considers him a Lannister, especially Cersei, who specifically calls Joffrey the future of the family when she's talking to Tywin. Even though he is technically a Baratheon. That... Yeah. Given what's happened to Tyrion and the way Jaime's going, it looks like this branch of the Lannister family is going to die out right away. There was that moment between Marjorie and uh, Cersei where you could see Cersei's so shaken by all of the stuff that's happening, and I thought it was really great and a really strange, you know, twisting character to see her so genuine and so, you know, thrown off of her high horse. Yeah, I wasn't convinced by her. I really felt that the only reason she was saying those things about how Joffrey would have been a bad husband and I had to love him. I think she was just trying to trick Marjorie into saying something mean about Joffrey so she could cut off her head. She does not care for Marjorie at all. Probably because she's already noticed that Tommen is only smiling at Marjorie and not Cersei. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't know about that whole uh, bedroom escapade that we got last episode. And I think, I actually disagree. I think this is the most genuine we've seen Cersei, even if she's not, you know, 100% actually shaken or you know she probably does still hate marjorie but i still feel like that this is the most shaken we've seen her in the entire series it's probably the most shaken i'm not sure it's the most honest though there were some great scenes with her and sansa of all people when king's landing was being besieged a couple seasons ago and cersei was drinking and just telling sansa almost in so many words how to survive as queen when you can't stand your husband. And of <laughs> course, Sansa was unable to follow up on that. But in those moments, I felt that Cersei was being as honest and forthcoming and helpful to poor little Sansa as she could. And even then, I thought it was interesting to see uh, Marjorie be a little bit more manipulative this episode than Cersei usually is. Oh, yeah. Marjorie is not taking her foot off the gas until she is safely married to Tommen and ideally has exiled Cersei to a faraway kingdom. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to see a whole new player in this whole Game of Thrones. Well, it's called the Game of Thrones. It's great to see <laughs> uh, a great new uh, you know, uh, player here in this game. And I think it's interesting to see her progression over the past few seasons, how now she's this great powerhouse. Yeah, uh, I guess that's what Oberyn Martell is trying to do because now he's walking in gardens with Cersei, I have to say, I'm not that impressed with him. He came to King's Landing announcing that he wanted to kill all Lannisters. And since then, he's been alone with Tyrion, didn't kill him, <laughs> been alone with Tywin, seemed to get talked out of wanting to kill anybody as long as he gets given the mountain. And now he's alone with Cersei and he's flirting with her. I realize he flirts with everybody, with everybody but still, 
Come on, Oberyn. Well, he'd rather write poetry. I mean, look at him. He's hanging out in the pretty gardens, writing poetry. I mean, that's where his priorities lie, obviously. I guess, but man, how about some more revenge? That was, uh, I thought it was interesting to see in the, uh, previously, they went way, 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 way back to some random things that I guess played out in the episode, and one of them was, uh, when you saw Tyrion send the other Lannister daughter away, and, uh, I didn't think that would come back in any big way, but lo and behold, she brings it up in her conversation with him. Yeah. That's all I got for that. I didn't actually (laughs) see the previouslys because my TiVo freaked out, and I had to watch... From 19 minutes on, I watched the regular episode on television. Then I went back onto HBO Go and watched the first 19 minutes. That's right. So you saw all the Daenerys stuff after all of the, uh, you know, Crusters Keep stuff. So I say we uh, jump over to Daenerys. What do you think of all that? Um, I liked that Daenerys is sort of interested in what's going on in Westeros. Part of me obviously wishes she would go over to Westeros so her storyline would intersect. But I totally understand her decision, which is essentially, I already, I've already taken charge of several cities slash city-states slash kingdoms. We have no sense of the geography of the Eastern Kingdoms at all. Not at all. But she's already taken control of these places. What if she just ruled them? I was really excited to see the fact that, you know, she finally was going to make some headway. You know, there was uh, that guy that finally captured a big navy, but she seemed really taken aback by that. And I was really surprised that, you know, she's been talking all this time, you know, all three seasons about, uh, you know, getting boats and then sailing over to Westeros. But here she is upset and then deciding to stay in the East and rule over what she's already got. Well, she wants to be followed blindly so anytime any of her advisors do anything without her specific recommendation or specific instructions she gets mad and we can see from the way things go over in westeros she's probably right about that if you just have a peter baelish on your staff and say go run around the countryside and do whatever you feel like bad things are going to happen like you have to keep your counselors on a really tight leash I'm amazed that she's still able to get all this information all the way from Westeros. I mean, are there ravens flying back and forth? Does, uh, you know, does she have some kind of, not telepathic, you know, magical connection like the ravens that I I don't really understand it. I thought that was really strange. And I'm glad that she finally isn't an afterthought that her storyline weaved in a lot more nicely than she usually does. It's not five minutes in the beginning or end of the episode. It was here they are talking about Joffrey's death and, oh, by the way, Daenerys, Joffrey's dead. Yeah. Well, uh, Jorah Mormont was one of Pycelle's spies, but I think he stopped being that when he decided to save Daenerys from being killed. But how is he still getting all this information? Ravens? Ravens. Ah, you haven't seen any ravens yet. (laughs) Well, they're very quick. You don't notice them. They're like, I don't know, Gmail or something. (laughs) It's also possible that Daenerys realized that her entire battle strategy relies on attacking places that are 75% slaves, and that doesn't seem to be the case in, like, King's Landing. That's right. Everyone's got a lot more, you know, oh, God, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot more. They're not slaves, you know? They're free people. They're actually trying to, you know, do something with their lives. And even though they, you know, can't really make much of a difference, everyone's got their allegiances, as opposed to the slaves who are just trying to, you know, make way with their lives. Yeah, and her advisor's assumption is that once she rolls into town, says... I am Daenerys Targaryen. All the houses will say, oh, Targaryen. Well, we should follow her. (laughs) 
I mean, they're there, I'm not, so maybe they're right. But it seems a lot like the assumption that any Stark will be able to take the North, even if it's Rickon. Yeah, Rickon's got, you know, not much to do right now. But hopefully, you know, he can rally up the people in the North, just like Targaryen and Daenerys. Hopefully they're trying to, you know, rally everyone else up in Westeros. Who knows how that's going to pan out? She likes to hang out in the East for now. And why shouldn't she? It's nice out there. If you already have a kingdom and it's nice and warm, and there aren't armies around trying to kill you, why not just keep it? So what if your historical kingdom is Westeros? You can stay where you are. Be happy with your fancy Eastern-inspired architecture. Yes, they really went all out with the architecture in the show, and they really decided to change the style between Westeros and... uh, and the East in a way that really made the show work. You know, yeah. it feels very subtle, but very real. You can tell where you are when you're just looking at the buildings of the North or the East or around King's Landing. And on that note, I was really happy to see the area again, because that throne room, I think is one of the coolest things in the show. And it's been gone for so long. Agreed. And they made the, uh, they made the little, uh, glass bird fly which i thought was oh, no <laughs> call back to the uh beginning of the uh beginning of the series which i thought was awesome again in the previously they threw in all the stuff about the veil and the uh you know the clips from robin and you know his creepy ugh, bratty ways <laughs> but he um you know anyone that's watching the show is going to remember that you know the fantastic set and the ridiculous relationship between robin and his mother yeah i mean they had to even in the show itself, they made a point of opening the moon door and throwing something down it just so you're always aware that that's there. Even if it's a wonderful gift from Uncle Peter, who's <laughs> so nice in bringing all the stuff from King's Landing up to the Vale, and then he just tosses it in the thing. I was infuriated by him. It was almost as if I missed Joffrey enough to want to be infuriated in this episode. Well, I don't think Robin is as malicious as Joffrey, but he's crazier. I wouldn't go so far as to say crazier, but he's definitely more of a brat, and outwardly so. He's a very spoiled, oh, look at me, I'm a kid, and I'm going to throw this wonderful little gift Mm. down the moon door. Well, like, he he wanted to throw Tyrion out the moon door just to see it happen. (laughs) He doesn't give a crap about anything that's going on. Whereas Joffrey would want to throw Tyrion out to cause pain and to see the horror in his eyes. That's very true. You know, it's much more sadistic, like the scene with the uh, prostitutes and the crossbow, which still gives me chills every time I think about it. (laughs) Yeah, that... They spent a long time establishing that prostitute, too. Oh, God. But, you know, there's... Also, while they're hanging out in the Vale, that fantastic reveal of uh, everything Littlefinger's been doing for the past four seasons. Yeah, Lisa Aaron is bad at murder plots. Yeah, she really is. I mean, I tried to, you know... In my notes, I have, oh, I trust her. Five minutes later, oh, I don't trust her. I couldn't figure out what to do just because she was so loyal to, uh, to Littlefinger. But then I realized she's too loyal to Littlefinger, as you, uh, as you see a little bit later with Sansa and her. Yeah. I don't think Sansa looks that much like her mother, but both Littlefinger and Lisa seem to be acting out all their feelings towards Catelyn on Sansa, if that makes sense. Well, definitely, you know, she's the last remaining, well, not last remaining, but she's the most, you know, prevalent 
female Stark that's still hanging out in, you know, King's Landing and the Vale and all of that. You know, Arya's off being Arya with a hound, and we can get to that <laughs> later. But then, you know, Sansa is really the only one that you've got to really impress your feelings about Catelyn on, especially after her brutal death last season. They need some kind of outlet, and right now it looks like that's Sansa. Yeah, so presumably what's going to happen is Peter's going to be creeping up on her and be really creepy and then Lisa's going to be really jealous about it and Sansa's going to spend the whole time freaking out I'm really scared for Sansa I thought she was going to be finally safe with someone that she <laughs> you know actually was uh, someone actually cared about her but then here you have you know Lisa freaking out that was the most bipolar thing I've seen on the show you know yeah. from I hate you I hate you I hate you oh come here it's okay have a honey cake yeah I liked that because a lot of the villains on the show tend to be villainous all the time. Like, when Littlefinger is nice to her, he's still Littlefinger, but Lisa switches between good Lisa and bad Lisa. It's like a little switch, whereas everyone else, they have several knobs in the back of their head. You know, a little bit of good, a little bit of evil, a little bit less evil. You know, that's the kind of way the show works, except for Lisa when she kind of goes berserk. Yeah. And then, of course, she uh, fulfilled her promise where I will moan uh, for the <laughs> North to hear or whatever it was. And yeah, you, you heard that a lot. <laughs> yeah, that was. I'm excited to see where all of that goes with Sansa hanging out in the Vale. Yeah. And again, Arya and the Hound are still allegedly heading towards the Vale because the Hound wants to get rid of Arya. And this episode, we learn for sure that uh, Arya wants to get rid of the Hound. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing she's still adding names because she's going to be kind of disappointed when she finds out that some of her people have already died. <laughs> yeah, she's going to want something to uh, channel all that anger and fear and, you know, all of that regret into. And then here she is with someone that's been you know guiding her all this time for the past, I don't know, season, season and a half. And he might be dying soon. When he woke up and she wasn't there, my heart, you know, sank. I was like, wait, <laughs> is my favorite bit of the season going to end now or not? See, my heart sank when we got to see her practicing. I was thinking, good, because people don't practice their sword play enough on this show, in my opinion. There's really just Bronn and Jamie sparring and her. And you never know when you're going to get into a sword fight. and You want to be ready. So she does this intricate sword kata. And then it turns out her sword can't even penetrate the hound's armor. That was a very, very good moment. Very subtle and very, you know, telling of where they both stand in terms of, you know, their relationship and where their arc can go. Because yeah. I really liked that, you know, uh, Arya's really taking the lead in a lot of the social, you know, and all the, uh, you know, where they're going. And then there's the hound that's actually the brawn behind the operation. And, you know, when they try to switch the roles, it doesn't work at all. His armor is impenetrable by needle. Yeah. Although he recommends a giant sword and big armor, but I don't think that's going to work for her. She's tiny. She's way too tiny. That's not going to work at all. She's definitely practicing the right style for her body type, which she is... She reminded me of uh, Link in The Wind Waker practicing with his baton, making uh, all the seas go. It was a very <laughs> gr uh, graceful and very deliberate movement and i thought that was yeah. really cool it worked for her with one suspicious cartwheel from an angle where we couldn't see her face <laughs> yeah that was definitely her the actress playing her totally <laughs> 
then what else we've got uh i thought it was interesting when the channel switched over to netflix for house of cards we learned all about the <laughs> um all of the inner workings at king's landing where their money came from you know that was an interesting twist yeah even cersei didn't know they ran out of gold three years ago no, right when the show started yeah you know lannisters can't really pay their debts anymore and they're just racking them up. Well, I guess that's the point of telling everybody the Lannisters pay their debts, that eventually you just run your credit line up. You know, you guys talked about this a few weeks ago. How many debts do you have to get into to have that be your family motto? We always pay our debts. I guess a lot. You know, in this case, yeah. they've been running out of gold for years. Who knows where they're going to you know, end up with all of their debts? Who are they paying to if they're the richest people? You know, he talks all about the uh, the bank. Iron Bank of Bravos. That was a very interesting twist on because I liked when they talked about the uh, trial and all this build up to whatever trial is going to happen later this season. You know, it's this interesting bastardized version of whatever American, uh, you know, things we have in place. We have the bank, we have the court. And I think yeah. it's really cool how they put the twist on it. And even Tywin doesn't really seem to think Tyrion did it. He has a much better head on his shoulders than, you know, most people like to think, especially when it comes to how he views his son and his legacy. You know, they talk a lot about legacy. Mm -hmm. um, I also think it's interesting. They say the Iron Bank of Bravos. Bravos is where Sirio Forel came from, the one that taught Arya how to sword fight like that. So presumably, if you're too much in debt to the Iron Bank and you can't pay them, all of a sudden, all sorts of awesome duelists just appear around you and stab you in the throat <laughs> i'd like to see that happen one day that would be fantastic all the little syria pharrells that are hanging out in yeah. bravos just descending on king's landing that'd be beautiful my proposal is that their goons are very stylish oh of course they gotta be stylish you know with someone like uh syria pharrell in the first season you gotta be stylish you know they yeah. gotta live up to that um what did you think of the scenes with brienne and podrick they were my most anticipated scenes just because I was so excited to see more of Podrick and I was so excited to uh, see how Brienne would react to, well, not an incompetent uh, squire, but someone that was just so passionate that couldn't really, uh, didn't really have the skills to match how passionate he was. And I'm excited that, you know, that actually happened and it was a great odd couple kind of thing. What do you think of it? Well, I think it's, they made a point of showing that he doesn't have any experience in the field. He's not a fighting knights squire he's a pouring wine and making sure the right handkerchief is available squire <laughs> he didn't even cut the skin off the rabbit when i saw that i couldn't believe that you know he just didn't really know how to do anything at all and i mean yeah wouldn't there be some kind of handbook to say you're a squire now walk on the right side that sort of thing <laughs> the uh i'm sure the book on that kind of etiquette still being written by some monk somewhere in the south um but since she learned that he killed somebody he gets to help her off with her armor that's very true you know she's been so self-sufficient this whole time and when he finally admits that to her uh, she sees a lot more worth in him i guess and i think it's interesting that she sees his worth in terms of you know death and murder and not so much you know practical skills like skinning rabbits yeah like we've seen that he has skills he's great with the ladies and he's very good at seeing and identifying banners there was that scene where he could tell all of the houses but that's not something brienne cares about exactly that's gonna 
be something that's more uh, more important down in King's Landing, where you got to be polite, you got to know the best wines, you got to have the right, you know, you know, like you said, handkerchiefs and all the right linens. And he served Tyrion the best he could in that setting. Can he do it out here? And that's what I'm most excited to see. How is uh, Podrick going to help Brienne? Yes. Uh, so I think we have gotten to the action at Craster's Keep. You know, they got there 40 minutes in, and I thought, you know, all of this crazy stuff happened last week. They better spend a good amount of time. And they spent the entire last 20 minutes at Craster's Keep, which I thought was awesome. Yes. Uh, we got to see Jojen seeing the future with Bran going to a giant tree. Yeah, you know, all the fans last week were angry about, uh, you know, the White Walkers inclusion, because apparently that really wasn't in the book with the whole baby at the very end. I'm, um, I'm excited to see how they react to the use of green screen at uh, Craster's Keep. I really don't think they had that kind of technology back then, but who knows? <laughs> we may, you know, have a big spoiler twist later, but I thought that was weird. You know, they have all these weird visions, and Bran really hasn't had much to do for a while. He's an interesting character for sure, but, you know, I'm glad that he finally had has, you know something to do i think i mentioned this last week that uh he's finally actually doing something as opposed to just hanging out constantly reminding you hey we're in the plot just so you know hi i'm the other star kid a lot of people i have seen were predicting that Locke, the guy who was kind of infiltrating the night's watch i've seen people predict that Locke was going to kill john i've seen people predict that Locke was going to do a lot of things. I didn't see anybody predict that Locke was going to get killed by Bran while possessing Hodor. Has he ever possessed Hodor before? I thought that was a really great little bit, but I don't think it's ever happened before, has it? I thought it had briefly, but I am not prepared to commit to that. I mean, that moment right after where Hodor realizes he just killed someone. I, oh, Hodor, I love Hodor so much, and that was a really heartbreaking moment. Yeah, that's got to be weird for anybody, let alone Hodor, who has some mental problems, to suddenly come back into yourself and see blood on your hands and a dead man. Like, I have to assume that for all of Hodor's life, he's been a giant scary guy that people are terrified of. And to discover that you are apparently some kind of monster it must be really difficult to have yeah. that kind of realization right in the middle of something as intense as this uh, big siege at Craster's Keep. And I'm amazed again that this uh, happened so quickly. You know, I thought there'd be at least an episode or two of John and his merry band of men getting there or at least some more buildup. But no, here we are 20 straight minutes of action where uh, everything burns down quite literally at the end. Yeah. Uh, John looked like he was doing a great job killing people. As he always does. They did have the shot where we have Bran in the foreground and John's in the background killing people. Bran even shouts for John, but then gets talked out of actually crossing the streams. No, we can't let him know we're here. I was really excited for a family reunion. I thought this time nothing crazy can happen. There's going to be no deaths because I didn't think Bran or John would die. But, you know, I didn't expect him to get talked out of hanging out with his brother. I mean, he loves him. He hasn't seen him in years, it seems like. And I'm really sad to see that didn't happen. Um, well, this is something I made up totally in my own head. But when John's wolf comes back to him and they lock eyes, I choose to believe Bran was acting as a warg at that point and was inside the wolf's head. I really like that theory. I'm going to stick with that too, just so I can have a little bit of closure here. Because <laughs> you can't prove it didn't happen. 
George R. R. Martin doesn't really enjoy family reunions. He must show up, stand 50 feet away, look around for five minutes, and then walk away without anybody knowing he was there. He might try that. I expect at this point everybody wants to talk to him. Yeah, he just kind of stand there. He doesn't like his family or weddings or anything. I don't understand. Like, <laughs> Yeah, he does not like weddings. You know, as if men need another reason to be married, says <laughs> Diana Rigg. We didn't see her at all this episode. Yes, we did. She, While Cersei and Marjorie were talking on the balcony, just as they were talking about Joffrey's death, down below, below behind them, Olena was greeting Tommen in his throne and walked away. Ooh, that's still not nearly enough Diana Rigg for my taste, though. Oh, I agree with that, but she's expensive. We can't have her actually talk in every episode. <laughs> no, she was there, at least. At least she made an appearance, reminded us that uh, that she was still a part of the show, at least. Um, so where do you think the show is going to be headed? What are you excited for for next week? Um, I would really like to see some Stannis. The last time we saw anything on Dragonstone, the, the Onion Knight was calling up the Iron Bank of Bravos, and I want to know where that's going, and I'd like to see what Stannis' next move is, because he does not seem to have given up. Especially now that we know that the Iron Bank of Bravos is such a big part of uh, King's Landing's you know, operations, I guess that Raven is still making its way out to the Iron Bank and uh, headed back. You know, they must be really slow, as opposed to the really quick ones that uh, that Jorga Moment has in um, out in the east. Well, the lines of communication on this show have always been very variable, in the first season, in the first couple seasons, Littlefinger was able to flit all around the place and show up at different castles during the time it took Robert Baratheon to get from King's Landing up to Winterfell. That's true. I do remember that. I can't believe that you know they were able to jump all the way around like that and have Littlefinger be as crazy as he was. And I'm excited yeah. to see that he's still there, still doing all these crazy machinations, still uh, you know behind everything. And this episode, we learned that he was uh, behind everything from the very first uh, moment we see John Aaron dead in the uh, middle of the chapel, like we did Joffrey. I'm glad that he's there. Yeah, I just don't think that Lisa Aaron is a good co-conspirator. You can't trust her because she's crazy, and also because as soon as she thinks she's alone, she'll start spilling all the details of your murder plot. Her priorities are so out of whack. There's no way that she can be trusted with any of this. I can't imagine Littlefinger, as uh, you know, deliberate as he is, trusting someone like her. Yeah, and obviously he hasn't reached his end game yet. He's got plans upon plans upon plans. Will anybody ever reach their end game in the show? Um. Well. Jojen can see the future. He was correct that Burn Gorman was going to die and be burned, ironically. <laughs> and he says that he saw Bran getting to that tree. Therefore, I believe Bran is going to get to that tree. Here's hoping. 